chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. We're going to finish chapter 1 today, I think. I think we're going to make it all the way. I think we're going to get through Philippians chapter 1. Here's what I want us to, to look at today is as we continue to progress through this, um, y'all, Philippians, it's, it's actually a really positive letter. Um, this is a pretty healthy church. There's a time whenever Paul says you need to tell, tell these two individuals that they need to get along because um, there was some division. Um, and y'all know that this is going to happen in the church. Like, I can tell you, I have this ideal romantic view of what a church plant in church can look like. And it's wonderful. And everybody gets along. And everything always works. The sound system's never messed up. Everybody's on time. The pastor knows how long to preach and never exceeds it. I mean, it's just things just in that church, they just click. I mean, I, I have that ideal model. And it doesn't exist. Because... You and I are imperfect people. I think it's Spurgeon who says something to the effect of, show me a perfect church and it'll be imperfect whenever I join it. And that's Spurgeon. And if he, if he knows himself that well that he would mess up a church, then, then I need to see myself in that way. But the church isn't perfect. Philippians, the, the church of Philippi, was not perfect. But this is still a pretty healthy church. Um, sometimes whenever I'm talking to people, they'll say, oh, I just want to go back to the old days of the church, back in the beginning, because, you know, whenever it was pure. And I'm like, have you read these letters? Like, have you read Corinthians and Rome? Like, which church do you want to look like? Philippians and, May- and Thessalonians. Those are the churches I would most closely want to look like. But they've got their own issues. Why? Because sin exists and we're imperfect. There's always going to be an imperfect church. There's always going to be the temptations that existed in the early church are going to exist in the end church where we are right now. So these things exist, but I, I like Philippians, but as positive and encouraging as it is, I don't know about you, but as I work through it, I'm like, oh, that's pretty convicting because I'm not there. Like I want to be there, but I'm not there. This is one of those, though, where I'm just telling you, um, it can be pretty convicting. It can, it can be one of these that, that kind of pushes back. And it all begins with these words in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like if I just stop right there and I ask you, are you living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? You know what Satan will do? He will tear you down. He will tell you how much you've messed up, how you're not living worthy how you're going to fall short, that the gospel of Christ is this great and glorious thing and look what you do with it in your life. If we just stop right there, Satan will tear you down. And you know what? Satan's right in many ways. We are unworthy. We know who we were. We are not glorious. We are not the best. We are the weakest. We are the foolish. And we come here and we boast in the gospel of Christ because... The gospel says, you are all of those things, and I died for you and made you so much more. So Satan can tell you how weak and and pathetic and and worthless you are, and we can gladly and gloriously say, oh, you're right. But my God died for me, and he made me so much more. Because did you also know that you're a fellow saint, that you're a co-heir with Christ, that you're the redeemed, that you've been made new, that for all the weakness that you have, you have all the strength of Christ? That when you pray, He hears you on the throne. And that He moved all of eternity to die for you. So if we just let some of these things sink in, it can be pretty convicting. But Satan's going to make that pretty condemning. And he's going to stack it up against you. So I'm going to pray one more time that as we read this, that we hear it the right way. And that Satan has no opportunity to do work that was never meant to be done by these, these verses. These should encourage us. These should shape us. And so I want to pray that as we move through here, that Satan doesn't have a foothold whenever um, God has already done such a great work. Lord God, your word is open before us. I pray that you give me the right tone. Give me the right heart and the right words. Lord, because this is a challenging litmus test. Only let your 
your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we know who we are. And Satan is, is the adversary going to point out every flaw and say, you're not walking worthy. But Lord, we may very well be. And so I pray that your spirit is refreshing to us today. I pray that you guard our hearts from condemnation because who can condemn whenever Christ is overcome? So, Lord, just let that confidence be there and that we, we do have conviction to grow in you and not condemnation to hide and shelter ourselves from you. Lord, you do the work that I know you know how to do because you've done it so well and so gloriously. Lord, guard us and protect us as your people. Praise our sons. Holy name. Amen. Okay, so, so that really is my prayers. I'm moving through this text. I'm like, oh, this is good. I like this. I need to be reminded, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I need to be reminded, strive for unity. I need to be reminded of confidence. And yet as I'm sitting there going through all this, y'all, Satan is always with me as a voice too. I don't know if you ever hear him and he's like, you know you're failing in this, right? You know, our adversary is active. And as I get to this passage and I look lovingly, at everyone that God gathers for cross life, that really is my heart is, Lord, teach us to walk in that way, but teach us to have hope in you. And so here we go. With all of that said, let's read Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, Paul writes, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So we're going to break that down. The, the title of this one is simply A Manner Worthy. Like this tells us exactly what, what I need, what Philip needs, what Paul needs, what Jerry needs. This is what you and I, we, we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord we've arrived, right? We've got this figured out. We know how to do this. This is piece of cake. I will tell you all that, that Philippians 1.27 is one of those verses that I've dwelt on throughout the years and more and more so over the last few years. This is a verse that I hold really close to my heart um, so that whether in private or whether in public, may I always live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether you see me, whether you know me, whether I'm present or absent with you, that you would have confidence that I am living a life, living my life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because here's the thing, whether you see me or you do not, Christ sees me. And the way we live our lives is in direct response to the gospel that he's given us. So I want to see and I want to, to always hold Christ so high and exalted that it begins to shape and frame everything about who I am. I want to live that life in private or in public in a way that honors and that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? It just simply means this. It means that I want to conduct my life, like just plain English, plain text. I want to conduct my life and my thoughts and my actions and my words in a way that really reveals that I am a Christian. That's what it means. Now, Paul writes it so eloquently, but, but this is a verse that means a lot to me. But, but let's get down to this. Without knowing Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no salvation, right? Without Christ, there's no forgiveness, there's no redemption, there's no reward. We know this. We gather in a church and we sing about this and we rejoice in this, but that's the truth. Without Christ, everything changes. But y'all, with this, with Christ, everything changes. And I just wonder if our lives actually are patterned after that. Our lives should reflect that we are Christians. 
And that seems like a, well, of course they should. Look, I'm here on a Sunday morning. I get the gospel. The gospel took root in me. Y'all, I can stand in my garage every morning this week, and I'm still not a car. Just because I stand in a garage, I don't become a car. Just because I sit in a church doesn't make me a Christian. It's about the, the trajectory and the pattern of our lives. We must live in a way that the whole unbelieving world says, now that is something different. And that means that we live in a life worthy. So, let's just not rush past this. Let's go, what, what is the gospel? Okay? The gospel is, is a pretty important aspect of what we do at Crosslight, but it's a pretty important aspect of the Christian life. And you know what I have found? Whenever I was asked many, many years ago, well, just tell me the gospel. And I'd been a Christian for decades. I'm sitting there going, oh, crud. Um, what is the right answer that they want right here? Like, what... Like, Rhetorical question, but do you know the gospel? Like if we were to go around the room and I said, what's the gospel? Tell us. Like how much anxiety would start to rise up in you? Because you're like, I, I don't know if I really know like the right. What do you, what are you wanting, Ricky? Like that's usually the question. Like what are you trying to get at? I just want to know, do you know the gospel? I responded to the gospel at a young age. I lived in light of the gospel as best I could. But then there's this anxiety that comes up after we've been Christians for a while where we know the term and it becomes a buzzword, but we might not actually know the gospel. And you know what? If we don't know the gospel, how can we tell the gospel? How can we live the gospel if we don't remember the gospel? I am of the mindset of, of his name is Jerry Bridges. He's an author. He's a theologian. And he says that we don't just need the God. This is my, my version of, of his, but we don't just need the gospel to save us. We need the gospel to sustain us. We every day need to be reminding one another of the gospel. It reminds us not only like who we were, but it reminds us whose we are right now and who we are right now. There was a great, uh, a great transition that happened in our life. And we can look back at it and we, we can say, well, in this moment, this is what I know the Lord did. And this is where I've had my hope. But, but how do we remind ourselves of that? On the days whenever I fear the most, you know, I carry a lot of anxiety with me. I'm a worrier. I don't always project the worry. I don't always project the anxiety. But I have a lot of anxiety and worry. But you know what? I also have a whole lot of confidence, especially whenever I finally pause and I remember the gospel. The gospel changes everything. And so, so in a very simple way, here's the gospel. And then I'm just going to tell you, we're going to go down the Roman road. Okay, and I'm going to explain why the Roman road is so incredibly important. So that's kind of where we're going. So if you want, you can hold your place in Philippians and flip back to Romans. It's called the Roman road because it's all in the book of Romans. Okay? But the gospel, y'all, is this. The gospel is the message of a loving God who loved us with such a deep love that he would send his only son to die on the cross for us. So that if we believe that Jesus is the son of God that he was sinless, that he died on our behalf and was buried and was resurrected and is seated on high. If we believe those things, that there was a loving father who sent his loving son who would die for us and who was resurrected again. If we believe those things, that's the gospel. It's that simple. It's that hard. Believing in something like that is not simple, and it's hard, because how could it be so accessible? And it's so hard, because it's so simple. So that's the gospel. We're, we throw around the word the gospel a whole lot. We say a lot of words in churches that we just assume one another knows. But you need to think through, in your own words, what is the gospel? The message is the same throughout the ages. The mode might change. I don't know if y'all have ever watched Ray Comfort share the gospel. Oh, you watch him. I want to be him. Like, he's eloquent. He walks through. He, he just has these conversations, and he, he all of a sudden, he's philosophical and theological, and he's real deep, and then he's laughing, and he's personable, and he's got this book called Way of the Master, and it talks about how you do it that way, and you watch him, you're like, I want to share the gospel like that because that is impressive and excellent. I can't do that. Like, I am going to be more the... Can you open up to Romans real quick? Okay, in Romans, here's what it says. Y'all, we're, we're going to each be able to share the gospel in a way that is befitting of who we are. But we're all going to be sharing the same gospel. And so here's, here's just a good road, though, for you to take. 
I want to walk you through the Roman road because the Roman road is the sharing of the gospel. So if you're sitting there and you're going, I don't know how I would walk someone through as I'm sharing the gospel, write down these verses. This is also going to remind us who we are and the gospel that took place in our lives. We need to remember the gospel so that we can walk in a way worthy of the gospel. That's the whole point right here. Everybody with me? Good. Okay, so listen to this. Romans 3.23. And you've got about nine verses here. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you know who sinned according to that? All. Do you know who fell short of the glory of God? All. You, me, all. From the beginning of time to the end of time, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody gets a free pass here. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 through 18. It's an extension of that. And it says, as it is written, listen to this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Y'all, that was us. And that is them. Not that they're legitimately, like, literally going out and murdering other people because we tend to weigh out sins in that way. Well, at least, at least I'm not doing this or that. But what this reminds us and it reminds those who we're, we're sharing with that all of us had gone astray, that there was not one of us who was seeking God. Everyone had gone their own way and indulged in sin all throughout their life. This is who we were, y'all. Like, let that sink in. I come in on a Sunday morning and sometimes I'm just sitting there going, oh, well, I can do this and this and this today. I forget who I was. I know that there's a, there's a great strength in I forget what lies behind me and I strive towards what's going ahead. You've got to put the right context there. You know why it's good to remember who you were? Because it reminds you of the work that God did in your life and it humbles us so greatly. This is who we were. There, we were not righteous. I did not someday figure this out. I did not excel beyond others. But I stand here as a Christian today, as someone who was not righteous and who was seeking sin in his own way. And then Romans 6.23 is the next one you can take them to. Romans 6.23. Who cares if I'm sinning? What's the big deal? If everybody else is sinning, then what is the big deal? It's this. Scripture so clearly says that the wages of sin is death. But, so let's just dwell there first. The wages of sin is death. Y'all, if we believe in heaven, you have no choice but to believe in hell. You don't, we don't get to pick one over the other. We don't get to just have the one we prefer and ignore the other. If we believe in heaven, we must believe in hell. If we believe that scripture is true, then it speaks so very clearly and graphically about the reality of hell. And Jesus warned about hell much more than he warned about the, or reminded about the glories of heaven. If hell is real and we've been saved from it, we should be rejoicing so much louder in our worship. And if hell is real, then we should be sharing so much more abundantly the gospel. If hell is real, we don't just get to sit here quietly. For the wages of sin is death. You know why the world sins? Because it's full of sinners. They're each pursuing their own way. They're not seeking God. We have been given the gospel. We must share the gospel. And then it goes on in 623. And this is where you get to the, the person you're talking to. They're probably feeling the weight of it. They're probably sitting there saying, I can't be a Christian because you don't know who I am. You don't know that I've done this and this and this and this and this. And I can fill a whole book up of sins, Ricky. I can give you words that aren't in a dictionary. I can tell you what sin is because I can even create like they can tell you how horrible they are. And you can say, you're right. And you don't know the sin that I walked in. But your sin and my sin, the wages of those was death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The world is so dark because it's full of darkness. We have light. And so we remind them that 
All of their sin laid up is going to result in death. And death will be in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then they're going to sit there and go, well, that's wonderful, but I don't know how to get that gift. And then we're going to take them to Romans 5.8. So Romans 5.8. We're just walking them through the Roman road here. This is how I would have to share the gospel, just so you all know. In Romans 5.8, it says, y'all get this. Remember when you heard this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you remember whenever that broke into your life and it began to change everything? You know all your sins. You can list them out. You've forgotten some of the sins that you did and you remembered, but the gift is Jesus Christ. And he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't have to get your life cleaned up for Christ to save you. You only had to believe. They don't have to clean their life up to a certain point because they're going to say that. They're going to say, I've got to get these things in place so that Christ will accept me. No, Christ accepts the one who says, I can't clean this up. I need you. And then he saves. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9. So as Christ is working you know, this is pretty simplistic here. I mean, if you look at it, you're like, you're just reading Scripture out loud. Like, it's really not that impactful. You know what? Words apart from themselves are weak. But whenever Christ is moving in their hearts, it's incredible. It shifts all of eternity. Okay, so Romans 10, 9. Here's what you need to tell them. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Moms and dads... Whenever you're having those conversations with your kids, and it's wonderful whenever you start to see the seeds of that coming about, you know what your kids need to know? That if they will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. You know what you and I did? We believed in our heart, we confessed with our mouths, and we were saved. You know what they need in this neighborhood over here? To believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth. The gospel is the same for everyone. It's the same for you, it's the same for me, it's the same for kids, it's the same for Muslims. Everybody needs to hear it in, in that God has richly and deeply loved them. But it's, y'all, it's that simple. Like, you could stop the whole Roman road right there and just say, do you believe? Cool. Like, I want to hear you say this. You believe that Jesus is Lord. And whenever they're walking in that, and then you start to see, then, like, that's it. They don't even have to pray a perfect prayer. What a disservice we've done that you have to fulfill these classes to prove that you're a Christian. You believe and you confess. Okay, so that breaks into their life. It broke into our life. I think that was Romans 10. I'm at Romans 10, 13. And here's our great hope. Here's what everybody needs to know. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Well, Ricky, I don't know. Sometimes it says like the elect and then sometimes it's like the Gentiles, the Jews. Like there's all this different language in there. Do you know who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Forget all the rest of the mess right now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you share the gospel with someone. You know who they are. You know who they've been. Can they be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's awesome. Romans 5.1. Here's the glory of that, of that gospel. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The high and holy, wonderful God who spoke stars and who speaks stars into existence, who upholds everything by the word of his mouth, like that God who cannot sin, we have peace with him. You know why? Because we believed in our hearts, we confessed with our mouth, and everyone who says, Lord, I believe in you, will be saved. And whenever we do, there is now peace with God. Which takes us to Romans 8:1. What a wonderful reminder you need whenever you're lying awake at night and you're remembering who you are and who we were. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. 
Who cares how high your sins stack? There is no condemnation because all the penalty for that, all the wages of death has been completely laid on Jesus Christ who allowed his beard to be plucked, who allowed thorns to be slammed onto his head, who allowed himself to be beaten and whipped and who allowed himself to be hung on a cross and died in our place. He took all the full penalty of all those sins that stack up. And he says, because you believe in me, it's not counted against you anymore for all of eternity. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, oh, Christian. Romans 8, because by this point, if you got them right there and they're tracking with you, they're already, God's already doing the work. They're, the, they're becoming a Christian or they're, they're the Christian at that point. Whenever they go, I believe and I confess, you're just saying, okay, now that you believe, like listen to this, bam, 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 and you're just like throwing on glory after glory. Romans 8, 38 through 39, here's what you and I need to remember. Here's what you need to tell them. For I am sure, Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is just remarkable. That's the Roman road. Y'all, that is a way of sharing the gospel. It's a, and you need that because a lot of why we do what we do at Cross Life is to equip the saints to go do the work of ministry. And you know what? I think that God's going to move pretty powerfully. If you have to have them on a little note card and someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian or how to become a Christian? You're like, hang on. And you like pull out this little note card from your back pocket. And you're like, okay, we're, going to, we're just going to read here. Because the power is not in how we present it. The power is in the work of God in their lives. This is going to work itself out. We just need to tell people that there is a loving God who saw their sin, died for their sin, and is welcoming them into his fellowship for all of eternity if they will believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth, and they will be saved. God does everything else. Okay, so I've got to put a pin in that. All right, but that's the Roman road. That's a way to share the gospel. I've got to remind you of this, and then we're going to fly pretty quickly through the rest of this, okay? Because... We needed to know the gospel. We needed to be reminded of who we were and why you and I are sitting here today. Because we would probably, if I went around the room and I just said, hey, roll call. Paul, you're Christian? Philip? Brownie? Like, everybody, of course I'm a Christian. You know the gospel? Got the gospel. Don't call on me, though. I got it. Don't worry. But, y'all, if we don't remember the gospel, we can't share the gospel. And if we do not remember the impact of the gospel in our lives, we will find that, that we will be tempted to, to walk in a way that feels more comfortable to us. We have to remember who we were to know who we are. You and I are here today as Christians because we heard the gospel, we responded to the gospel, we confessed our sins, and I pray that you are growing stronger in Christ every single day. All right. So rehearse the gospel for two reasons. You need to be able to share it with others for their salvation. You need to be able to tell it to yourselves for your own encouragement. All right, we're going to keep moving. So then, whenever he says, oh, you know, I can't, I can't miss this. I'm sorry, this is way too important. If, because this could have happened just now, it may very well be that you're sitting in this room and you have never heard the gospel or never heard the gospel communicated in that way. And so you're sitting there and you're seeing and hearing and understanding this all in a new way. And you're sitting there going, okay, like, I want to be a Christian, like it makes sense, like that all is pinging for me right now, then all you have to do is like in the privacy, like right where you are, like it's just a simple, Lord, I believe. Okay, like that's it, Lord, I believe. Like I don't got it all figured out, but I believe. Like I don't want you to miss that moment, like just right there where you are, Lord, I believe. It really is that simple. And then I can meet you right after the service and we can talk some more. Or what you might need to do is text somebody and just say, I need to talk in a little bit. Text a Christian, and then that's your way of not letting this moment pass you because you can let the moment pass you. If you text, I need to talk in a little bit, then they're going to be following up saying, what do you need to talk about? So one of those two, either I believe, and then, and then that's your moment, and then we'll talk later, or text someone so that you can't get out of it later. But I don't want to miss the moment where if you heard it, and you might have been sitting in churches for decades, and all of a sudden you heard it in a fresh new way, and you understood, I never really knew the gospel until now. It's a fun thing to talk about. The gospel that saved us, y'all. So here we go. Now we're going to start flying. The gospel that saved us is the gospel that shapes us. That's what this is all about. The gospel that saved us is the gospel that should shape us. 
So whenever Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's saying that that gospel to which we responded, it should be shaping our lives in a way. And I could go in so many different directions here if I want this to be a topical sermon. Be like, oh, you want to have a more gospel-centered life? Five points, here we go. I'm going to pull from here, 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 and here, and I'm just going to kind of pull it all together. It's right here. It tells you what the gospel-shaped life should look like. And it's not easy because there's other people involved. Just going to tell you, okay? Here's what it looks like. Two main points. The gospel-shaped, gospel-worthy life looks like this. You have unity with other believers because of Christ, and you have confidence in the face of persecution because of Christ. Unity and confidence. And I think of those two, let's just get real, the confidence is probably the easier one, the unity is the harder one. Just how we're, how we're wired. Okay, so that's, that's the outline. A man or worthy, I'm going to break that down super quick, and it's going to culminate in unity and confidence, and then we are going to pray and go walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so whenever he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's like Paul says in many of his other letters, he says, walk, and he'll use that word walk, walk in a manner worthy of the, of the um, I'm sorry, the walk in a manner worthy of Christ, or walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He'll use that word walk, right, which is kind of that idea, let your pattern of life be like, like, like this one thing. Well, he used that word for walk about 30 different times in all of his letters, here, whenever he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's using another walk verb, but it's not like all the other 30. He only uses it one time, and it's actually a political term. And it's, it's this idea that a citizen should act in a certain way. I don't always go into the Greek whenever we're preaching, but I think that it here that's actually very relevant and makes a whole lot of sense. Because to the Philippians, what they just heard him say is, conduct yourself like a citizen, of the gospel. Okay? So to be in Philippi was a Roman colony, and to be in the Roman colony, you had to act like a Roman, you had to talk like a Roman, you had to observe all their customs and laws like a Roman. So they understood this term, and so to do all those things as the Romans would want them to do, they would be walking in a way that is worthy of the Roman culture, right? So whenever he says, walk in a manner, conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying, you need to act. You need to fulfill the duties of the Christian. You're a citizen of heaven. You and I are here in this world, but we are citizens of heaven. Therefore, we need to walk differently. We need to think differently. We need to speak differently. And he's reminding them that whenever we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, it will look different than the rest of this. You and I are citizens. The Philippians, they would have understood this in a whole new way that that I'm having to kind of grasp at here, right? Because the word to them, they're like, we are citizens of heavens and we have, we have certain duties that we have to fulfill here and we've got to walk in that way to be a good citizen. They heard it immediately. You and I have to kind of think through that. What does it mean to live as a Christian in this world? We don't have quite that parallel except to be in our language, except to be reminded that you and I are Christians and therefore, the gospel has changed us. It is shaping us to be different. And we are lights in the world in the midst of darkness. And so that's, that's that idea. I, there's a short poem that I found um, as, as I was going through some Warren Wearsby stuff. And it looks like, I'm going to read it to you. It's about eight lines long. And I think he really kind of grasped it. But it's, the thrust is this, what Paul's going for is that our lives should be so radically different because of the gospel that others see the reality of Christianity in our lives. Does that make sense? You and I may be the only exposure to Christianity that others ever have. And I don't want to squander my time with that. I don't want to miss the opportunities that I've been given to make much of Christ. Here's this short poem. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the, words, and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? Dang, right? Like, follow me for a day. 
What is the gospel according to me? Like, what do I actually live out? That's where I'm saying it can get pretty convicting. You know, the, the most powerful weapon against the enemy is not a great sermon. It's not a, it's not a wonderful marriage. It's not the, a best-selling book. The most powerful weapon against the enemy is the consistent life of a Christian. The enemy can't stop the consistency of a strong Christian. That's a high calling. That's hard. But we must live what we proclaim. We must proclaim what we live. I said that last week. That's what Paul is really trying to get across. Don't talk about the gospel. Live the gospel. Don't live the gospel. You've got to talk about the gospel. Whatever we say we believe in, we actually got to live. And whatever we live, we need to be proclaiming. The disconnect between there is hypocrisy. And we don't need any more hypocrisy in our world. What we need and what the world desperately needs is authentic Christianity. The gospel truly impacting lives. And it makes a difference. Conduct yourselves in a way so that an unbelieving world will see that your faith is true. It directs how you speak, how you think, and how you act. Um, Paul, he wrote to the Corinthians. Listen to what he said to them in 2 Corinthians. He says, you, you Corinthians, you are our letter, known and read by all men. He says, Corinthians, everybody's watching the way that you live. You are our letter to the world of the gospel. Cross life, you are the letter that others are going to read about the gospel. They may never pick this up apart from your, your, um, your intentionality in their life. The closest that they may ever get to knowing anything about anything, any sort of Christianity and authentic, genuine faith is your presence in their life. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a high and holy and honorable calling, and it is hard. You know why we do that? Because Christ did it for us. It's going to happen in two ways, okay? So, I'm just moving fairly quickly. We've heard the gospel. We've got to walk in a manner worthy of it. If the gospel's true, we cannot be the same as what we once were before. We are constantly growing in Christ. Now, here's what... Paul says in Philippians, he says in, in the rest of 27, whether I come to you, come and see you, or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Notice that, standing firm in one spirit. He's not writing to one person, he's writing to the church. Look at this. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One chief characteristic that an unbelieving world needs to see is the unity of the church. That's what he says right there. Whether I come and see you again, whether I, Paul, show up and, and, and correct you or not, whether I come and see this or not, I need to know that you are standing firm with unity. I love Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded a blessing, life forevermore. We put it on our sign, or on our wall here, even at Union. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's what the church should be. How can we be a body, and how can all the parts work together if there's disunity? Think about the witness of the church whenever there's disunity within, whenever churches divide, what does that show an unbelieving world? Whenever we're talking to others and they know that we're Christians and we go to a church and what they hear is criticism or concern or preferences and they hear that there's some disunity there, what does that communicate? If Christ came to unify us and bring us to God and give us the unity and yet we break it, where does that come from? Two sources, Satan or self. Satan has has a strategy that we know. His strategy is divide and conquer. If he can divide Christians one from another, he can conquer the church. How many churches have lost their witnesses? How many Christians have lost their credibility or their witness because of their division with others? Chas and I were talking yesterday because I always tell her, you have a great spirit of discernment. Like, I'll go to her because I do think she has a really great spirit of discernment whenever I'm trying to think through a situation or I feel kind of like that something feels a little off in this conversation right over here. She has this great spirit of discernment. And then that ultimately led us to this. Is it, and she said, I'm always trying to be careful because is it discernment or is it deceit? 
Because Satan is also going to come in and say, Ricky, you have great discernment. You actually need to not do that right there. But disunity will absolutely rise up in the church. Where God is active, Satan is so much more active. The church where God and the gospel are not being proclaimed, he has no reason spending his time there. But cross life, we need to be mindful that Satan will seek to destroy the unity of a church. Why? Because it goes absolutely contrary to everything in the gospel. If you and I, who were strangers, have been made fellow heirs and co-heirs and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've been brought together, then what is Satan going to do? He's going to seek to divide. Warren Wearsby puts it in this way. He says, Satan is the great divider and destroyer. Christ is the uniter and the builder. I mean, let's just let that kind of play out in the history of what we know about the church. Not because we're being critical, but because we want to be mindful. But how many times have we seen pride take root in a church? And then that pride, that seed kind of grows down and the roots begin. There's bitterness that begins to take place. And it usually starts with about one or two. And that's why Hebrews says, beware the root of bitterness. Right, because it's just a small scene, then that bitterness begins. We can become territorial even in our even in our ministries. A lot of pulpits don't get shared because this is my pulpit. This, I'm the one who preaches here. I'm the one who does this. We've seen it in music ministries. We see it in youth ministry. Which ministry is the greatest? Which missions? I mean, we see that territorial aspect that will come up in the church, and then we also see that people will get offended, and that offended nature, whether right or wrong, ultimately leads to disunity, and people start to pull apart. This is how Satan works in the church. He seeks to divide. So Satan will break the unity or ourselves. Y'all, we, uh, I think we give Satan way too much credit for the sins that some of us um, commit. Oh, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. You did that. Like, that was all you. He might have dangled a temptation, but you're the one who bit. You're the one who got reeled in right here. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't not this that your passions are at war within you? You know what James just says? What causes quarrels and, and fights among you? Satan? No, he said it's what's within you. Our own sin and our own self are the cause of so much more division than we probably want to give credit for. And I am just as capable in the next 30 seconds of causing division as anybody else in this room. Cause for a certain sort of humility. But this division can arise if we're not careful to watch for it. Division is going to arise from Satan or from self. So we have to fight for it. Now, thankfully, Scripture gives us a great way to handle this, right? How does, he, how does Scripture tell us? Approach one another, discuss it, and be reconciled. Piece of cake. Absolutely piece of cake. Jared offends me. I'm just going to go over there and talk to him, and we might not fully agree, but we're going to shake hands, and everything's going to be absolutely fine and wonderful. Y'all, church is messy whenever real lives come in. We have to pray for one another. That's why I always want us to pray for one another. It's the only thing that's really going to keep our flesh out of the whole equation. But we probably have this romantic idea right now. Well, cross life, it's good. We all get along. Everybody so, oh, come on, Right? We're just in the honeymoon phase right now. Like, we're a church. Satan is going to seek to destroy. He's going to seek to divide. And if not Satan, then our own self will. That's why we need some sort of otherworldly humility that comes in, where our pride is checked, where whenever we feel that division coming up, it's checked. And that's what Chas and I talked about is whenever we're talking to one another, because she was afraid, uh, and I thought it was actually pretty discerning in her concern for her discernment, it's like, oh, no, I'm kind of afraid whenever I say things that maybe I'm sowing some seed of discord and I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, that's very discerning. High five on that. Um, but, but she's right. Even in talking to our spouses, even in talking to, to someone that we feel comfortable with, we need to be careful that Satan, what Chess says, she doesn't want to be the source of disunity or a wrong perception even for me. We have to be mindful of the disunity that can creep into a church because you know what Satan would love to see? Another church fell. Love to see another church divide. 
So Paul says, you're going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's going to look this way to the world. You will have unity in the church. You're going to fight for the unity in the church. And then number two, you're going to have confidence because of Christ. Okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to go really quickly here. Flip to Acts 16. Whenever he says that you're going to have the confidence, he says you're not going to be frightened by anything by your opponents. That's Philippians 1.28. You have to remember what he's talking about. Because he says in the face of persecution, you're not going to be frightened. Well, that's easy for Paul because he's a super Christian, right? He's writing to the Philippians. And in Acts 16, we have a glimpse of what he encountered at Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 22 through 25. Here's what was experienced. The crowd joined in attacking them. The apostles there. So the crowd turned on them and attacked them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks... Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Paul knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to face slander. He knows what it means to face persecution. He knows what it means to face injustice. And he experiences in Philippi, the people to whom he's writing are fully aware of everything that happened, that they were slandered, that they were maligned, and that they were put into the inner prison where the worst were supposed to be put. They were put into stocks and made a mockery of. They know, the Philippians who are reading this letter, they know what Paul endured. And he's saying to them, look, you need to strive for unity and confidence because this is going to be a testament of your faith. Y'all, Jesus is worth so much more than our fearfulness. I have to remind myself of that one constantly. He is worthy of so much more. I could point you to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who is, he is being martyred. He is bold and he does not cower before those who are stoning him. Instead, he says, do not hold this against them. And he looks up and he sees Jesus who is standing and looking down at him. He is not fearful before his opponents. Why? Because he knows who his God is. You and I have a God who knows who we are. And he knows every aspect of all of us. And he knows it and what it's going to be for all of creation. He hears our voice when we pray. And that's why we have confidence. You know, we don't just need the unity in the church as a church. We need the confidence of the church. Right now, we don't face persecution. We face people who don't like us. They don't like our post. But we're not like that serious persecution where our church is going to have to meet in homes. or under. We don't know that kind of persecution yet. It will come. It's going to be in the end. And we're going to see it increase more and more. But the world cannot grasp an unshakable confidence in the Lord. They don't know what to do with that. When the enemies rise up and they push against the church or they push against your faith. Now, I'm saying we as a church. I'm not saying you individually. You probably do know persecution. But whenever the persecution begins to press in and you don't back down because you know who your God is, the world doesn't know what to do with a faith like that. They know what to do with temporary situations. But you and I, we know that there is a sovereign king. We know that there is an eternal God. We know that there is a God who whenever he speaks, the thunder booms. Did you all like that in Job earlier this week? Wasn't that amazing? Like listen to the thunder boom of his voice. Some of you didn't read your text. Now I know which ones didn't read your text. Okay, good to know. Go back and read your text from Job because it talks about how we should be listening to the thunder booming God. Y'all, this is the God we know. Therefore, how can we fear? Here at Union... I have people around me who come alongside and they're like, you remember that God is sovereign, right? Like, we see it all over your face, but you remember that he's sovereign. I was having lunch with Trent one day and he just kind of reminded me, he's like, well, God's either sovereign or he's not. I'm not immune to doubt and fear and worry. We all need one another. It's the unity of the church that becomes the confidence of the church, and that communicates to the world some sort of different faith than they know. And so how will you and I work, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? You and I must have unity. You must have unity with one another. Whatever it takes, we've got to have that unity, and we've got to have confidence. That's what an unbelieving world cannot comprehend, and then that's what an unbelieving world says. There is something worthwhile in that gospel.
But if we want to have disunity, we got to figure out where it stems from, and we can have our disunity, and we can have about 50 more churches pop up in this next year. Or we can say the gospel is worth me putting everything aside to come alongside you so that Christ can be magnified in our differences. The world needs to see that though it presses in, we can say our Christ gave everything, therefore we will give everything, we will not have fear. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ according to Philippians chapter 1. Now he's going to tell us in other chapters, walk in a manner worthy. But I think we just kind of pull it all back to where we are right now. Whenever he wrote Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he had a very clear intent for him. He says, you need to walk in a manner worthy in this way. Now, here's the confidence in that, and then we're closing. What does he tell them in the next verse? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. And that's where we're going to stop. When we live in that way, it's a sign of our salvation, and it's a sign of their destruction. To try and live in this way would be glorious. I pray that God gives us uh, this crazy amount of unity that he has blessed us with week in and week out. I think that is a huge blessing that many churches do not have. And he says, whenever we have this unity and this confidence, we're walking in a manner that this is proof for us and for them that we are saved. And it's also proof that they are not. Verse 29, you need to hold on to that. I'm not going to talk about the role of suffering in the Christian life. Because we've talked about the presence of suffering. I'm just going to tell you that grace is twofold. we got the grace of God, which is mercy and redemption and the forgiveness, but also the grace of God. It has been, quote, granted to us. We should also suffer for his sake. So grace twofold. It's been granted that you get to have all the wonderful eternal truths and that it's granted to you that you will suffer for his name's sake. It's weird how he puts that suffering right in line with being confident in the face of persecution and being unified with fellow believers. So I, I think this is simple. This is great, simple application for me. Are you living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ in those ways? Are you seeking unity? Are you striving for confidence? This is what an unbelieving world simply calls unbelievable. And it's a testimony of the gospel because it's all of these messy lives that have been changed and now are being shaped by the gospel into a strange sort of unity that doesn't make any sense to anybody else. So I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to go from here. We're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And whenever we feel that, that, that discord start to come up within us, we need to stop and say, Lord, is that, is that you giving me discernment? Or is that division? Where's the source of this? And what Chas and I ultimately concluded was, really you look at the, the end source of it. You want to know if it's deceit or discord or if it's discernment, what's the end result of it? If the end result is division, then we know where it comes from, Satan herself, and we stop it. If it's discernment, it's going to strengthen and shape the church. Y'all pray with me. Lord God, help us today to know the gospel. Lord, I don't want to forget it, but I do. I don't want to graduate past some of the glory that you first showed me whenever I was so excited. I said, I want to be a Christian. I want to, I want to believe in who you are. But Lord, we've seen so many who profess it and then they just walk away. Lord, teach me to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving for unity with all believers and having confidence because of who you are. Lord, we love you and praise our son's holy name. Amen.